Uh, from the outset, let me say this. Uh, this sermon is going to contain some very sensitive sexual content. We're going to see the abuse of power for sexual gratification. We're going to see Esther's one night stand with a pagan king. And so if you're in here this morning and you have a 11 year old or younger and you believe that this is not the time that you want to be having these conversations with them, uh, we want to extend an offer for you to allow those children to go. Pastor Kyle will meet them here in the back and he will take them back to a CK3 or CK2 classroom if you feel that that content is a bit much for this for them. But let me say this. Uh, we I read through this sermon last night with my wife and uh, we believe that if Landon, who wasn't serving today, was here, who's 11, that we would we would feel comfortable allowing him to be a part of this sermon. Uh, we're not going to be diving into the the basics of sexuality, but we are going to be talking about that story. So at this time, if you want to release your children or your child to uh, CK3 because you feel like this content might be too heavy for them, Pastor Kyle will meet them in the back right now. But I also want to acknowledge this. Some of you might find this material extremely difficult because of your own experiences. And if it becomes too difficult for you, please feel free to slip out. We understand. But at the same time, I want you to know that we here as your pastors and elders and as a church, we are here to help you. We want to care for you either by allowing you time to set up a counseling session with one of us on staff Or we can give you some resources to help you work through these traumatic experiences in your life. And so I want you to understand that I have prayed over this sermon and recognize that some of the content here will be heavy for many of us. But that doesn't make it any less important. And we should not shy away from what the scriptures have to say. Amen. Amen. Here's a question I want to answer for you this morning. And I'm going to put this question specifically in the singular tense, the first person tense. Can God still use me even though I have a sinful past? Now, it seems like an easy question to answer. But in reality, we have many Christians, groups of believers who have either unintentionally or intentionally been placed on the sidelines because of their past. In my decade-long ministry, I have had people come up to me over and over again and say things like, I don't feel like I'm able to serve God because of what I've done. Now, I want to make a point of clarification here. The reality is that every single one of us has a past. This is why Paul says to the Romans, in Romans chapter 3, 3, verse 23, he says, for all have sinned, And fall short of the glory of God. So every one of you in here has a past. Every one of us were by nature children of wrath. Every one of us were dead in our trespasses and sins. The difference is, and the point I want to show you, is that some of us in this room acted on our sinful nature more than others. So for example, some of you... You know you have a sinful nature. That's why you gave your life to Jesus. That's why you put your faith in His work. But the reality is that even before you started following Jesus, you may not have given in to your sinful proclivities as much as others. And there are many reasons that people do not get into their sinful natures. For example, some people have the fear of consequences. 
So, for example, they don't sleep around because they're afraid of either getting pregnant, getting somebody pregnant, or being getting a disease. Some people don't cheat or steal or lie for the fear of getting caught and having to face those consequences. And it's those fears that restrain you from giving in to your sinful impulses. Some of you in this room, you might have had a certain image to maintain. Uh, People might have called you a goody two-shoes. So you restrained yourself from engaging in your sinful appetites in order to maintain that, that image. But the reality is, even though your sinful proclivities were restrained, you are still a sinner in need of grace. But there's other of us in this room who actually, in our sinfulness, practiced our sinful nature that was embedded deep within inside of us. Some of us might be like Xerxes who used others for sexual gratification. Or some of us might be like an Esther who had a one night stand. And some of us in this room are dealing with broken relationships that came about because of our sin. And I think it's these people that this text speaks specifically to. Because many of these people, and maybe even you, wrongly believe that God can't use you because of your past mistakes and sins. Some of you think you're unable to serve the Lord because you've been divorced, you've had been a drunkard or a swindler, engaged in homosexual behavior, an adulterer, a murderer, a drug addict, addicted to pornography, a cheat, a thief, a prostitute, and literally the list could go on forever. The point that I want you to see this morning, every one of you in this room who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus is this, and this is all I want you to take away. If you're a believer... Or if God is calling you to faith today, I want you to know this. If you're not dead, God's not done. You can say amen there. I'm okay with interactive church, brothers and sisters. If you're not dead, God's not done. You see, what I want to show you this morning is how the gospel moves you from your past... And allows you to serve Jesus in your presence. Are you still going to deal with the consequences of your sinful past? Of course. But God can use your past to bring redemption to people suffering from the same sinful pains in the present. Yes, some of us, our past might prevent us from serving in certain places like children's ministry or in the office of elder. But that does not mean that God can't or doesn't want to still use you. In fact, Esther is going to be an example of a woman with a past who's used by God to save an entire nation. His people, the people of Israel. There's one more group I want to address in this room. Some of you in this room, you're not haunted by your sins. You're haunted by the sins of others. Some of you in this room might be the recipients of a A man or a woman like Xerxes who abused their power to satisfy their sexual appetites. And I want you to know that God hates sin. And I believe that God hates what was done against you. And as a shepherd of people. I want you to know that I'm sorry. Sorry for the trauma that you might have endured. And listen, we're here to help you and work through it. But I want you to know something as well. 
I want you to know that God can use your pain to still serve Jesus in the present. I don't want to minimize what was done to you because it was not right. But I want you to know that that pain should not paralyze you. That God can use even the pain as a means to help others who have experienced the same things that you have in your past. Brothers and sisters, if you're not dead, God's not done. And my prayer is that through the power of the Holy Spirit, the truth, the beauty and the goodness of the gospel, through the word of God, will move you from your past to serve Jesus in the present. So let me show you four observations from this text as we can apply this to our lives. As we can see that God works and uses us even in the midst of our brokenness. Observation number one we're going to look at is in chapters or verses one through four of chapter two. So if you have your Bible, chapter two, start in verse one of Esther. Esther chapter one, we're going to look at verses one through 18 today, but we're going to break this down into very manageable chunks. I want to make four observations to help you see this truth this morning. Uh, observation number one, and I have them on the board for you as well. Uh, Xerxes is a moron. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Xerxes uses his position of power for sexual gratification. In other words, Xerxes is a moron. You see, after Xerxes banished his queen, Queen Vashti, in chapter one, he banished her because he called her to come in while he and his buddies were at a drinking party and wanted her, wanted him to, sh- wanted her to show off her, her body to these people to be used as an object for their own preferences and their own gratification and she would not come. And so he makes a decree out of his anger that she would not return and he says she is banished. She is no longer queen. She's gone. And she will never return to my presence again. Now, we don't know the exact years between chapter 1 and chapter 2. But we do know by looking at verse 16 that when and 17 that when Esther goes into the king's room for her one night stand with the king, it's in the seventh year of his reign, which is four years after the party that he has in chapter 1. So most likely when chapter 2 verse 1 starts, most likely this is anywhere from two to three years After the king has banished Vasti. Most likely what's happened though. Is that the king has gone. Xerxes has gone and tried to beat Greece. And Greece beat him. So he came back with his tail between his legs. And now all of a sudden he's come back defeated. He's come back uh, after this long time period. Between when he gets rid of Vashti. And now all of a sudden he starts feeling bad. He starts looking for someone to pick up his spirits. And he looks and he realizes and remembers it says... After these things, when the anger of the king Assyrius was debated, had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Now, let's recall something here in Persian literature and in Persian king work. When a king made a decree, it was unbreakable, could not be revoked, could not be changed. So he couldn't go back and say, ah, I changed my mind. All right. When he made a decree, it was solidified in stone. And, and, and this is what we need to take away. All of a sudden he comes back after two to three years and it says that his anger had abated. He was no longer angry. Now this is a complete sermon for a different day, but I want to highlight one truth here. Okay. When we do things in anger, we will typically deal with regret. 
When you make decisions in anger, you're typically going to regret that decision that you made. This is why James tells us that, a, that an act of faith, a faith that is set, settled in Christ, is a faith that is slow to anger. Now, I will tell you from personal experiences that it's easier said than done. When I was younger, and sometimes still today, my anger gets the best of me. And when I finally cool off, I think about it, and I'm like, oh probably not the best decision I should have made. Probably shouldn't have made that decision in anger. I'll give you a key example, right? Like uh, I've learned and I'm learning over time that when I'm angry, the best thing for me to do is just keep my mouth shut. To process, to think, to pray, till I get my head on right and the emotions kind of go down before I turn around and have a conversation with somebody. And, and so sometimes what will happen is if I'm like, if I'm like worked up, I, like I might get ready to send an email or a text. And what I typically do is when I know that it's in me, when I feel that anger inside of me, when I, when I feel the veins in my neck pulsating with my heartbeat, I, I'll write the email out because it feels good to write it out. But I won't send it. I sit on it for 24 hours. And then when I come back and read it, I'm like, eesh. 100% of the time I erase it and start again. But the reality is that Xerxes shows us that we make, when we make, we make bad decisions when we're angry. So when you're angry, it's best to step away, collect yourself, pray, ask God to calm your spirit, calm your soul, and then turn around after that and make a decision. But we see that the king is no longer angry and now he misses his queen. And these young guys, these young king, the, the attendants come to the king with this terrible idea. Verse 2, they say, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the province of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins of the harem and Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. That was the plan. Oh, you're lonely, king? Great idea. Let's go get all the virgins from your uh, beautiful virgin women from your, your kingdom and let's bring them together for you. And then the one that pleases you the most, make her queen. The only illustration that I could think of to help you understand what's taking place here is this the most horrendous show on the planet, The Bachelor. But instead of a conversations and rose ceremonies... It's through a one night, through the overnight date, if you will, with the king. And it's a different woman every night. And notice the king's response. A good king would have been what? You guys are morons. Get out of my sight. Into verse 4. This pleased the king and he did so. You see, the king uses his power and position to take advantage of young virgin women throughout his empire. We see that this king, instead of using his position and power to protect and serve his people, he used them to please and serve himself. Number two. Esther is selected and becomes a contestant for queen in chapters and verses 5 through 11. So I don't want to read all this. I want to paraphrase a couple of it for you. Finally, we are introduced to Esther in chapter in verse five of chapter two, uh, verse seven, actually, is where we get to. But we introduced to her family and her heritage there. 
She was actually uh, an orphan. And Mordecai, who we see is her cousin, took her in. And the text says in, at the end of verse 7 that the young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. In the, in the Hebrew there, it means she was gorgeous and had a hot bod. I'm just kidding. They, they translated it better than I did. But you get the point. She was selected to come to the city of Susa and be placed in the care of Haggai. The king's eunuch who was in charge of these virgins. Now, you've got to remember something. Esther and Mordecai are living under Persian rule as exiles. And the text never tells us their true motivations and intentions for why they do what they do. We don't know if she was forced to do it. Did she willingly go to the palace? Did she do it to get her family a higher status in society? The text doesn't say her motives, so therefore we shouldn't say her motives either, okay? We need to be very careful when we try to take our own opinions and thoughts and place them into the text of Scripture. The scriptures speak to us. We don't tell them what to say to us. But we see a few hints here of what Esther does when she's taken into the harem. Under the command of Mordecai, look what she says and what we see the author tell us in verse 10. That as she gets taken into custody, that Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. So here we have Esther... Who is hiding her identity. She is hiding the fact that she is a part of the Jews. The people of God. And I find this to be problematic. On Esther and Mordecai's part. Because do we not recall some of the great heroes of our faith like Daniel? When the Persian king says to Daniel. When the Persian king makes an order. You're not to pray. Guess what Daniel does because he's been doing it his whole life. He goes and he gets on his knees, opens his windows, and he prays. And then he gets thrown into the what? The lion's den, but what does God do? Shuts the mouths of those lions. You ain't eating my servant, he says. I'm just saying, that's not in the text. That's just what I think he says. Number two. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. A pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, says that you will bow to my statue and worship me. And those three men say, nope. He says, if you don't do it, I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace. And he's like, so be it. Our God will protect us. And if he doesn't, he's still God. And I think that Esther and Mordecai would have known the stories of their ancestors. But yet they go along with it anyway. And Mordecai's in the same boat because A, he allows her to be taken. And B, he makes her hide her identity while she's in there. Let me just tell you honestly for a moment. My sinful nature sometimes comes out. If somebody came to my door from the king's palace and said, I'm taking your daughters with me because they're gorgeous young ladies to go and sit into the king's harem. I'm telling Katie, grab the kids, run, and I'm about to go Marine Corps martial arts on these brothers. After I say, can I pray for you first? Then I'm going to put the whooping on you. I'm going to protect my little girls. But Mordecai doesn't do that. And I'll be honest with you, they might get me at the end, but I'm taking about 30 of them with me. You know what I'm saying? The point is that we see that Esther and Mordecai hide their identity and concede to the contest. Observation number three. From verses 12 through 14, we understand that the details of the virgin's performance was to sexually please the king for a night. So once this year of beautification was complete, the text shows us that the women would go into the palace one at a time. And she was able to take anything she wanted with her from the harem. And look at verse 14. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would what? 
return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz. Now, here's the here's what you need to understand. They are changing harems. They're going from the virgin harem to the concubine harem after their one night. This is how we understand that the author is implying that this is a one night stand with the king. That they are designed to sexually please the king and gratify his sinful desires. Because not only were they not returning to Haggai, they were returning to Shazgaz. And I think this is the subtle way of what he's trying to say. Now think about this for a moment. Yes, these women were having to be taken and used by the king. But what was even worse is basically they would live a luxurious lifestyle of pseudo-widowhood after this. They would never be able to get married. They would probably never have children. And in fact, at the end of verse 14, it says this. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. In other words, she would not see the king unless he said, come back and see me again. And it breaks my heart to think about these women. Here they are having a one night stand with the king. And then they have to live the rest of their lives of concubines as concubines in his harem. Sure, they would have a luxurious lifestyle in a palace. But they were deprived of their ability to get married, to have children. All because this knucklehead used them to satisfy himself. Yet this is the exact predicament that Esther is in. Which leads me to my fourth observation from the text. Esther's one night stand wins the competition. We see this in verses 15 and 18. Look with me really quickly at verse 17. Or, let's do 16. Let's go to 16. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the other women. Now, scholars think that all the other women was anywhere from 400 to 1,000. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants, and it was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Every time I read that text, I, I think of Gene Wilder, Willy Wonka. When Charlie comes in and gives the everlasting gobstopper back to Willy Wonka. And he goes, Charlie, my boy. I think of King Xerxes going, Esther, my girl, you won. You did it. I knew you would. And it breaks my heart. Because going back to point one, Xerxes was a moron. Right? Thank you. So let me ask a question. Now that we know Esther's history here, do you think God could use a woman like Esther who hid her identity, who slept with a pagan king to bring salvation and redemption to his people? Yes, he can. And yes, he did. Think about the majesty and the glory of God. God uses broken people that have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus to do his work. And you and I, brothers and sisters, we get to be a part of that work no matter our past. Esther was going to be used by God. To defeat the plans of the evil Haman. Who was going to kill the people of God. And God said, no, you're not going to kill my people. Because I made a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 verse 3. That out of this people would come one day an anointed one. A Messiah, Jesus Christ. 
And no man, no evil man can ever thwart God's plan. And God says, you know what? I will even take broken, sinful people and I will still bring my plans to fruition. So if God can use a woman like Esther, don't you think he can use somebody like you? In fact, I would argue that's all he's got. That's all he's got. Broken people to work with. The only one who ever walked this earth who wasn't broken was Jesus. So now all he's got is us. But that's how amazing and big our God is, is that God can use us even in the ashes to bring about redemption and salvation for his people everywhere. Listen, I think our pasts are an excellent glorification of the gospel in our lives. We could turn to people and say, look at what Jesus pulled me from. Look at what Jesus saved me from. Look at what, at the sins Jesus forgave me of. And I want you to see that it is, I want you to see this in my life. I want you to see what the gospel has done for me through Christ. Because what the gospel has done for me, the gospel can also do for you. That's why Jesus came. He came not to condemn the world, but to save the world, to save us from our past. And when God saves you from your sin, all of them, including those that are in your past, God will and wants to use you for his glory in the present. Yes, Xerxes is a terrible person. Yes, Esther entered into this sexually immoral bachelor contest. Yes, she won after a one night stand. But let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. God was still working through it all. That is the sovereignty of God in action. God can use your life. No matter what you've done. Because you have been forgiven in Christ. To serve him in the present. And bring more people into his kingdom. In other words. If you're not dead. God's not done. So you might be asking yourself, how do I accept God's grace for my past in order to be used by God to serve him in the present? So as I thought about that question this week, I have five steps that I would like to share with you today about how this happens, how God works, even in the midst of our brokenness, even in the midst of our struggles, even in the midst of our pain, even in the midst of our suffering. That there's five ways that we can walk with God through this process in order to be used by God to glorify his name and advance his kingdom. Okay, number one, step one, I have them on the board for you. Very simple. You're like, is this all that being a theologian is? Yes. Just saying the Bible stuff over and over again. It's that easy, all right? Number one, ask for forgiveness. You're like, this is easy. I could preach this sermon. You could. Tried to get Rick to do it this morning. He said, no. I'm just kidding. Ask Jesus to forgive you of all your sins. He stands ready and willing to forgive every wrong you have ever done. That's why he came. He came to live the perfect life you couldn't live. To die the sacrificial death, we deserve to die and victoriously and gloriously rose again from the grave to prove that he has defeated sin, he has defeated death, and he has defeated the enemy. And when you ask forgiveness, he will forgive you. He will forgive you of everything you've ever done, everything you've ever thought, and everything you've ever said against him. His forgiveness brings new life today. Number two, forgive yourself. 
By believing you have already been forgiven in the work of Christ. In other words, stop beating yourself up for your past sins. Know today that they have been forgiven at the foot of the cross. Know today that you have a new identity in Jesus. Know today that your, your sins have been cast as far as the east is from the west. Stop carrying the baggage. Know that your sin has been dropped off at the foot of the cross and destroyed when that tomb was emptied. You could tweet that. Step three. Try and reconcile with those you've hurt to the best of your ability. Our sin not only separates us from God and hurts us, but it also hurts those around us. Do your best to seek out forgiveness. Do your best to make amends, to reconcile, to restore those relationships through the power of the gospel to the best of your ability and then move on. Move on and start serving Jesus with the rest of your life. Try to reconcile to the best of your ability and then move on. Number four, completely surrender your life to Jesus. Completely surrender your life to Jesus. You see, I don't want to get too far ahead, but I will. Coming up in chapter four, Esther is going to make a huge surrender of herself. Mordecai says, well, how do you know it's not for this reason that God has you? He doesn't use the name God. But how do you know it's not for this reason that you're in that palace right now? It's to save the Jewish people. And she says the one phrase that everybody knows from the book of Esther that is like the turning phrase of the entire book. And she says this in a complete surrender. I will go to the king and plead on behalf of my people, because if I perish, I perish. That's a life completely surrendered to Jesus. If I perish, I perish. So what? So be it. Interestingly, last Sunday, Landon and I sat down and worked through the book of Esther together. And we looked at how many times the name Queen Vashti was mentioned in this particular book. Fourteen times Queen Esther is mentioned in this book. Only one time is she mentioned by Queen Esther... Before chapter 4, 13 times she is mentioned as Queen Esther after she says, if I perish, I perish. And I think that's significant from the author trying to tell us. What I think the author is trying to show us is that while she may have been queen in title, it wasn't until her surrender that she completely earned the position among her people when she was being used by God to save them. Listen, a complete surrender to Jesus does not mean you have to become a pastor. Does not mean you have to become a missionary. Everybody thinks missionaries are the Navy SEALs of Scripture. They're not. Are the, the world. They're just faithful people following Jesus like all of us, I pray. And let me just say this. If you feel like you're called to the ministry or to the missionaries, we would love to have a conversation with you. We would love to support you, encourage you, and equip you to do what God has called you to do. But not everybody is called to that. But the idea here is that a life surrendered to God means you use the positions he, he has given you to serve Him. Just like Esther. She was in the palace for a reason. Use your position in the palace to serve God by saving God's people. So here's some ways that I thought about this application for all of you in this room. If you're, if you use your place of business as a mission to bring more people to Jesus. 
Use your influence in this community as a means to bring more people to Jesus. If you have influence over government or government officials, or if you're a government or a government official yourself, use your position as a means to bring more people to Jesus. Use your passions and gifts and money as a means to bring more people to Jesus. Whatever you have, or whatever you do professionally, surrender it to Christ and use the remaining time, talents, and treasures of sharing Jesus and seeing Him continue to expand His kingdom through the gospel. And let me remind us all this morning that the gospel is the only means of salvation and deliverance from certain death. Now let me talk to young people in this room. Young people, uh, God wants to use you too. You don't have to be like, oh, I can't be used because I'm young. Wrong. Lots of young people were used by God. David, most likely 14 when he slayed Goliath. Daniel, pretty young when he stood up to the king. Don't think I have to wait until I get to a certain age before I can be used by God. No, young people, you can be used by God today. Think of yourselves as missionaries into your school. We at Center Church will confirm that on you. If you want, we will just put you up here and commission you right before you go into your schools to be missionaries. But think also about your career choices. What passions and gifts has God given to you? And use those to leverage them for the kingdom of God. To advance the good news of Jesus. If you're a business-minded kind of young person, go get a business degree and do business overseas. While you're doing business overseas, teach people about Jesus and plant the church. If you love animals, go be a zoologist and then go work at a zoo in China. And help them grow in their love and understanding of who Jesus is. If you're an engineer mind, go get an engineering degree and use it overseas. Amongst those people who have never heard the good name of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, let me be reminded of step four. Completely surrender your life to Christ. Because when you do, step back and watch how God uses you for his glory. Number five. And I don't mean this one to sound rude or mean to all of you, but... Start serving the Lord today. Some of you need to get off the sideline. Get in the game. Because right now in our world, in our culture, we need every Christian called to arms with the good news of Jesus and the word of God in deep prayer for the people around us. Surrender everything to him and serve him faithfully the power of the spirit. Share your testimony. Stop allowing your past to paralyze you from doing the work of ministry. Move on from your past and make a plan right now to serve Jesus in the present. But lastly, let me just share with you the greatest news of all. You see, Esther is not an example for us to emulate. Esther, I like to think of her more as a historical roadmap to the true hero of Scripture. King Jesus. Unlike Esther, Jesus did not have to do anything immoral to sit at the right hand of God. John says to us in 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Jesus did not have to sin. Jesus did not have to do anything wrong to make his enemies his footstool or to save God's chosen people. 
So what the incarnation teaches us, fully God, fully man, no sin. And it's because of Jesus. It's because of his purpose and mission that you and I can be saved from certain death, eternal damnation and separation from God. It's because of Jesus that we are saved. And once you are saved through Christ, then you are now able to live a life completely surrendered to Christ. As J.D. Greer likes to say, don't put the cart before the horse. He says it this way, living for Jesus comes after being rescued by Jesus. Living for Jesus comes after being rescued by Jesus. And that is what the story of Esther is designed to teach us today. If you've been rescued by Christ, and if you're not dead, God's not done. So let me ask you two questions. Have you been rescued by this Jesus? Today, if you haven't admit that you're a sinner, believe that Jesus' work is the only way that your sins and your past can be forgiven. Confess to Christ, believe and trust in Him, then stand back because He is going to use you no matter what your past is. In other words, if you're not dead, God's not done. My second question is, if you are a believer, are you living for Jesus? Because you've been rescued by Jesus. Are you using your times and your talents and your treasures for building the kingdom? Brothers and sisters, God has you here for a reason. And don't think because you have a past that you're supposed to sit on the Christian sideline. God wants you to move on from your past. Surrender everything to serve Jesus right now in the present. The thing we need to take away from Esther is this, brothers and sisters, who need to get in the game. Who need to share the gospel. Who need to go to the unreached peoples of the world. This is what you need to understand. If you're not dead. God's not done. I want everybody to bow their heads and close their eyes. I'm going to do two things in response to this sermon. Number one. I'm going to give everybody a moment to just pray. I don't know how the Lord is stirring in your heart. I don't know what he is saying to you through his holy word this morning, but I want to make sure that you have time to do the work that he's doing in your life. But number two, I'm going to invite Tammy and Kyle forward, Pastor Kyle forward. And I want you to know that you don't have to do this alone. Tammy's going to be to my right. Pastor Kyle's going to be my left for whoever you're most comfortable with. But listen, this morning, if, if, you, if you need help with this, if you're like, I don't know where to begin, I don't know, I'm still struggling and dealing with the baggage that I'm carrying from my past, then you come up, this is going to be our prayer team today. And you come up and say, pray for me. And these two will pray the gospel over you and pray for whatever it is that God wants to do in your life. They are here for you. You don't have to walk through this alone. But also, if you're ready to accept Jesus this morning... And surrender your life completely to Jesus. Then I want you to know that we are also here for you. Make a bold step to come forward and talk to Miss Tammy or Pastor Kyle and say, I'm ready to give my life to Jesus. Will you pray over me and then help disciple me and walk me through my next steps? But lastly, some of you in this room, 
You might need help working through a message like this because of your past experiences and trauma. We're here for you. And if that's you this morning, you're like, just pray over me. I'm really struggling because of the sins of another that have impacted me in a very traumatic way. I want you to know that Pastor Kyle and Tammy want to pray over you too. And they're going to stand up here even through communion. Because we want you to know as a church that we're here for you. You're not dead. And we believe that God's not done with you yet. And we want to be a part of God's fantastic salvation and redemption story in your life and in the lives of all those people that you touch. So take a minute. Right now, if you need to pray, pray. If you need to come forward, come forward and get prayer from one of our prayer team. This is your time right now. Every head bow, every guy closed. You move as the Lord leads.